Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. There is no way around how much this week has sucked if you are a Toronto Blue Jays fan, if you are the Toronto Blue Jays. They got pasted again last night, 9-2 by the Texas Rangers. They were swept four games to nothing on home turf. Now, some of this is just the way the schedule works, but the Blue Jays had never been swept in a four-game series at home in September before. Certainly hadn't been swept in a four-game series at home in September in the middle of a tight playoff race to the team that was chasing you heading into the series. They lose 9-2. to two. They lose the series 4 to nothing. They were outscored 35-9 to nine on aggregate in this series. Not only have they squandered the lead they had in the wild card over Texas, they have squandered the potential to lock up the tiebreaker. They have squandered, you know, if you put any stock in the momentum coming out of a Royal series where they really didn't play very well, but still won three in a row, that has been squandered. You appear to have squandered the goodwill of the people still going to games. Yesterday was the biggest crowd of the series, and it was also the loudest when it came to the old Boo Birds. It looked like it might be okay. Briefly, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hits a moonshot of a home run to put them ahead early. Yeah, it was an 81-mile-an-hour fastball right down the middle of the plate. Uh, maybe not the, the pitch you're celebrating most, but you can only hit what's thrown to you, and they did that. And with Kevin Gosman on the hill and... Vlad's breaking his, uh, well, not O for streak because he had that dribbler of a, a ground ball, but, you know, shaking off uh, what had been a very bad series to that point. Maybe you felt okay about it. Well, the third inning rolls around and the bases are loaded and Bobachet has one of the uh, bad, bad blade appearance. Uh, four pitches, swings on a third strike, way out of the zone. Just not, even with Bobachet not being, you know, the the world's most walk-oriented guy, uh, that is a pretty bad plate appearance by his standards. And then it starts to set in there. You know, Nate Valdi comes out of the game after three and a third innings because of the pitch limit he's working on as he works his way back from the I.L. And you're like, OK, well, great. Five and two thirds innings against a, a Texas bullpen that had an ERA over six the month before this series started. And you can't get much going against them at all. Bradford is able to go two and two thirds uh, innings. Vlad swings and misses at, you know, a 91 mile an hour pitch that wasn't middle middle, but, you know, kind of in the high and tight, the power zone. If you if you time it up well, a, a location that would go for a ride. And again, it was only 91. And then we get the seventh inning. And Alejandro Kirk walks. They make a pitching change. Bobachette walks. So two on and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is up. And it feels like a big emotional swing moment because uh, doing some damage here could pull the Blue Jays back into this game, maybe even put them back ahead. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. had the home run earlier in the game. Would you feel a little bit more confident in this team if Vlad had a, a two home run game in some really big spots and they were able to pull this one out against Texas? The absolute monster shift in potential energy for this plate appearance uh, is pretty big. And by the way, baseball reference tries to do a championship win probability added. So it takes each plate appearance, looks at the leverage index of the game, measures it against things like your playoff odds and things like that. Uh, this was a, a big moment for not just the game's outcome, but the wildcard race's outcome. And Vlad gets from Jose Leclerc gets 97 middle middle. And he can't time it up. Swings and misses through it. He gets another one in that plate appearance. 97 middle middle. Swings through it. 
And then with two strikes, Leclerc decides, well, he just swung through two of them. I'll challenge him again. It comes in at 96. It's, it's a little higher and, and a little more in, but still very much a strike. And Vlad swings through it again. Three swinging strikes on three fastballs, two of them right down the middle. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. now on the season. There are 68 players in baseball who have seen 100 middle-middle fastballs. He ranks 60th with a 371 slugging percentage against those. Again, he is one of the worst hitters in baseball against fastballs down the middle. And two years ago, he was second in the MVP voting. This is a team-wide issue, by the way. I said Vlad's slugging percentage on middle-middle fastballs was 371. George Springer's is just 400. Matt Chapman's is 333. It's right down near the bottom. All three of those guys uh, among the 68 qualified hitters in the bottom 15. The Blue Jays as a team slug 483 against middle-middle fastballs. Fastballs right down the heart of the plate. A pitcher saying either missing their spot or saying, here's a challenge fastball. Only the Oakland Athletics do less damage on those pitches than the Toronto Blue Jays. Here's a stat of those pitches league wide. One of every 44 of those pitches. So not, not at bats or plate appearances. One out of every 44 of those pitches gets taken for a home run with the blue Jays. It's one every 77, 77 fastballs down the middle before between each home run off of one this is obscene. The league average slugging in those situations, by the way, six Oh seven, the Atlanta Braves are slugging almost 800 on those pitches and the blue Jays are down ahead of only the Oakland athletics. If you want to talk about, and we have this season of missed opportunities, months of not hitting with runners in scoring position, an entire season of, you know, picking up two out of three when a sweeper's right there or, or losing a, a close game here and there missed opportunities in terms of this Texas Rangers series, losing a couple games against lesser teams, um, you know, not adding sufficiently at the trade deadline, just this rolling list of missed opportunities. Well, the fact that only the Oakland A's are worse than you on gimme pitches, if that doesn't encapsulate the season of missed opportunities, I don't know what does. Wasn't the only reason they lost that game, that Vlad played appearance. And again, the only two runs they got came on a Vlad home run. There were uh, a couple of plays that, you know, Whit Merrifield maybe should have made Dalton Varsho maybe makes him if he's in there with Merrifield playing hurt right now. So how much do you put that on him? How much do you put it on the lineup decision? Uh, Kevin Gosman was not particularly good. He said, quote, we played terrible in all facets and he put a lot of that on himself fair or otherwise. Corey Seager continued to just destroy this team. Solo Homer in the first two run double in a second, another hit in the fourth. And he'd uh, eventually come around or not come around to score on that because of a, a nice Kevin Kiermaier play. But yeah, Kevin Gosman wasn't particularly sharp. And then your bullpen gives you a little bit. And then you turn to Trevor Richards in a leverage spot. And he's been, obviously he's had a very, very good year, but he has been really shaky since he came off the IL the day before. And we nitpicked with it yesterday and it felt maybe a little too nitpicky. Why did Jordan Hicks pitch in the blowout game on Wednesday when Bowden Francis is supposed to give you length? And then this game rolls around and Jordan Hicks isn't available because he threw 23 pitches the day before and you have to turn to Trevor Richards in a higher leverage spot and it all comes unglued and it comes unglued with Jimmy Garcia. And then we end up seeing Bowden Francis for the third time in, uh, in four days because the leverage just keeps getting lower in these situations. It was a mess. It was a mess of a game. It was a mess of a series and the Toronto Blue Jays now find themselves not at the end of the line. There's still a, uh, 
there's still a lot of baseball to play. 15 games goes a long way, especially when the Mariners and Rangers are playing seven against each other. Someone is going to lose those games. Someone's also going to win those games. The Toronto Blue Jays find themselves today one and a half games out of a playoff spot, two and a half games behind Texas, even further behind Houston. If Houston were to fall into one of these spots, at the beginning of this series, the Fangraphs playoff odds had the Blue Jays at 79.3% to make the playoffs. This morning, that is down to 33.6. So they have gone from a 4-5 and five chance to a 1-3 and three chance by way of getting swept by the Texas Rangers. Now, that number is purely numbers-based. What do these players project like? What do these next couple games project like? Let's simulate them 10 million times. They do not account for the fact that this team had a pregame meeting before yesterday's game and still came out and played like that uh, for whatever, you know, uh, the, the saying of momentum is only as good as your next day starter. That works in both directions. Jose Brios throwing on Roberto Clemente day today uh, could be a, a nice little boost. And he's been mostly very good for them. But if you were a believer in Kevin Kiermaier stealing the mic and espousing the good vibes on Sunday, you are probably also a believer that they're in a rough spot today mentally as we turn to this Boston Red Sox series uh, will be three down at Rogers Center the end of this 10 game home trip uh, homestand that has you know at this point now not been particularly good three and four uh, joining us now someone who uh, called them listless in his headline from last night's game is Shai Davidi MLB insider for Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca uh, Shai before we get going here uh, an early Shana Tova to you Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Blake. Uh, how you doing? Uh, obviously, high holy day aside, it's obviously a weekend that, that means a lot to you for non-baseball reasons. How are you feeling on the baseball front? It's going to be an interesting weekend, right? Like this is, you know, as I kind of wrote yesterday, and this was not my word, not my headline. Oh, my yeah. bad. <laughs> That's right. Credit I said my bad. Out. I should have known better with it, with how the headline game works. That's it. Um, but at the... Really, this is where the medal gets tested, right? Like, uh, as I wrote last night, the the 2016 Blue Jays had a 4-12 and uh, 12 stretch, uh, sorry, 5-11 and 11 stretch uh, in, to begin September that year. And they really had a period of time, like, right around the same point of September where the walls were closing in on them, and they found a way to get back. And... That's where this group of Blue Jays is at right now. The walls are 100% closing in on them, and they have ample opportunity to get back into the postseason. And it's just a matter of can you fight through the frustration? Uh, can you fight through the physical struggles that, that different guys may be going through? Can you fight through the feelings of being in control of your own fate and going into a big series and then just getting your butt whooped by one of your rivals for the postseason. You know, can you can you overcome all that? And that's what the Blue Jays are going to be tested. And if they're able to turn the page and say, you know what, let's just go take this out on the Boston Red Sox and then let's go take this out on the Yankees and the Rays and they have a good stretch of baseball, they will absolutely end up in the postseason. But at the same time, if they can't fight through that and the, the baggage is just too much for them to overcome, well, 
you know, then this is, is going to have a much less happy ending. And that's what I wonder about when you draw that comparison is, yeah, I remember that stretch pretty fondly. The Angels take a couple games off of them. We're all staying up late to watch those games on the West Coast, and it, it felt pretty dire there for a minute. And then they turn things around against the Mariners and have an okay stretch run back at home. But something that stands out to me as different for that team is, uh, well, that team was very, very similar personnel-wise to the 2015 team. There were a lot of veterans in that room. There were a lot of guys who had literally just gone through that the season before where you were 500 around the trade deadline and had to make that last push. They had that kind of collective uh you know, understanding of what it took and that they did it together and they accomplished it. Now, this group has obviously gone through two pretty tight playoff pushes the last two years as well. One of those came up short. One of them they snuck in, but were were very quickly removed from that. When you talk to guys in that room, when when you hear some of the quotes post game, um, wh- where do you land on you know this team's ability to stay connected like that 2016 team did and kind of keep the faith in their ability to turn out of it? You know, it's really hard to just kind of look for one thing, say, oh, this just has to happen and that just has to happen. Uh, You know, I was looking back at something that Troy Chilowitzki said uh, at the back end of that streak. uh, And he said, look, ultimately, you just play better and you have to trust that that everything's going to everything's going to come together and that you've got to be able to just get out of your own head and just just play. And that's something that I think this team was really trying to focus on after last night's game, at least the people that I spoke to. And it was, there, there was obviously a lot of frustration over the way this had played out. Uh, yeah, I think the, the, they definitely heard the, the booing and recognized that it was, it was earned, but it doesn't feel good for guys. I think for a lot of them, it's really the first time that uh, they've experienced booing in Toronto. Uh, and that, and that, that's an interesting dynamic all on its own, kind of says, uh, you know, speaking to the kind of the moment of where this team is and, and how people maybe feel about it. But ultimately, they just have to turn, find a way to turn the switch. And uh, one player said to me last night, look, the Rangers were in the same spot they were in last week, and they just clicked. And can the Blue Jays click in that same way? You know, that the ability is there, the pieces are there, everything they need is there, but it just has to happen. And, you know, what is, what is the trick to make it happen? It was, it, did it happen for the 2016 team because they've been through it in 15? I don't think so. And, and if you actually look back, it didn't exactly click. I mean, they finished 8-5 and five in their final 13 games. And that last week, they had six games in the final week of the season. They opened it one and three. They lost two of three to the Orioles at home. And then they lost the opener of the final weekend in Boston. And it looked like their season was going to fall apart. Uh, And then they found a way to pull it back. So, you know, this isn't necessarily going to be easy. It's not necessarily going to be smooth. But it's just a matter of trusting in the ability, letting it play. Uh, And, you know, I think there's been that – the gap between ability and execution has been a talking point all year. And the reasons for that is really a bigger picture question for the Blue Jays to examine this offseason in terms of why it hasn't happened that way. Uh, but for the time being, it's just fighting through finding a way. And it's, it's simple, it's cliched, um, but it's the truth, right? Just 
just stop with the baggage, push it aside, compartmentalize what's happened, and and just find a way to win on a given day. And it's, you know, the the compartmentalization is such a huge part of baseball, right? Like individually at the team level, like that's how you don't end up letting a four-game losing streak, which I think is just your second four-game losing streak of the season, turn into, you know, a seven or eight-game one. And you're right, that 2016 team, uh, you you bring up there, and I posted this year's Fangraphs playoff odds chart uh, this morning on on Twitter, and it's uh, not being well-received. But that team went from 96.6% down to 53.9% and then back up to 100% all in the final week of the season. Uh, there were big, big swings there. I will say, though, theirs never got as low as the 33% or so the Blue Jays are looking at here. And, I, and Shai, I, obviously, everything you're saying is correct, right? There are 15 games left. You could beat the pants off a mediocre Red Sox team that's dropped seven of nine. You could roll into New York and and have a good series there and things will feel a lot different. But what this series has done, in addition to kind of eroding the vibes and the fans patience, it sounds like with this team is, you know, you have taken it from being completely in control of your own destiny to now, not only do you have to play good baseball, but you're watching those Seattle, Texas games really closely. You're out of town scoreboard watching. That's a, that's an uncomfortable spot to be in and I guess you know that's uh that's the reality of where they're at and John Schneider said last night time to see what you're made of and I guess shy this is not a a reporting question it's more of an analysis question the playoff odds have them down at 33% right now we're going to see what they're made of what do you think they're made of what do you like where is your you know level of confidence that they can find that gear over these last 15 games because I think we all you know me you Arden Ben we we take the kind of level-headed approach over 162 and know what the talent level is and stuff but now that it's just 15 games it all feels uh it all feels a a lot tighter than hey these guys are good and they'll be good in the long run do you feel are you feeling that as you analyze these games day to day as well yeah I mean look for me the I've just struggled all season to wrap my mind around what this team is. Uh, And as I mentioned before, that, that gap between, you know, talent and ability and like, you know, projection of a projectable performance and the actual, actual execution on the field uh, to me is the real story of this year. Like why more of it hasn't translated. And, you know, to a certain degree, maybe this, you know, at this point, it's pretty clear. That's just what this season is, where it's it's not a team that's going to bludgeon you offensively. It's a team that's just going to have to find a way every night that's going to be a little bit different. They can't just rely that that three-run homer is going to be there, which is was really the formula and the bedrock of the, you know, 2020, 21, and 22 teams. That, and... You know, is that going to happen? Is it going to lock in? I, honestly, I don't know. Like, I could certainly see it happening. I can certainly see this team going on a run and then being like the Philadelphia Phillies hmm. uh, last year, just getting really deep and ruining a lot of teams this season. Uh, and I can see it not happening as well because, again, we, we that's what we've witnessed uh, over the course of 140-something games. So... It's just, again, it's just been a really head-scratching year because, you know, coming into the year, I liked a lot of the moves that they made. I understood a lot of the moves that they made. It seemed to have made sense. There were a few assumptions in there that, you know, I noted at the time that 
could be the problem. One of them was the lack of a consistent or a potentially consistent number four hitter. And, you know, I, I didn't check the numbers the last couple of days, but earlier this week, they had the fewest RBIs out of the cleanup spot in the major leagues. And just, you know, all the other numbers aside, if you're not getting production out of the four spot, it's going to be tough for you to be a consistent offense. And that, that's been borne out. Uh, and, you know, though that, that and, you know, a couple of the other offensive things that they were counting on not happening has really made this season play out vastly different than so many people expected. And so, you know, to, this team has been unpredictable uh, all year long, and I think it's just as unpredictable over the next 15 days or 20 days, whatever it is. Because, again, like, you can totally see them going on a run, and you can totally see them not getting it done. And, Shai, to spoil your later stat query about that cleanup hitter stat, well, they got zero RBI from the cleanup spot the last four games, so uh, I don't think they have risen in those rankings at all um, with a big uh, a big goose egg there. And you're right. Look, contextualizing this as relative to the expectations entering the season is, is kind of where I was going to go with this anyway, so I'm glad you kind of went there. That, yeah, everyone knows that once you get into the playoffs in baseball, stuff can happen, right? But the goal of this season, the aim of the season, the, the benchmark of the season was not just get there and then maybe stuff happens. It was to win a division and after last year, not leave yourself susceptible to the variance of a of a best two out of three series and try even if they sneak in here you know obviously if they go on a run and win the world series like we'll all kind of forget about this but that's not a very likely outcome even if they sneak in here you know the way this season has played out and that gap between individual talent on paper and expectations and what has actually happened just how big of a I don't want to say reckoning in terms of like job security and things like that, because that's a conversation for two weeks from now, but in terms of reevaluating their process and how they build this thing out, how much do you think this year is going to be cause for really reexamining the, to use the front office's uh, own phrasing, the process side of how they built this thing? Yeah, for sure. And to me, I think one of the most intriguing quotes uh, that I've heard in a long time came from John Schneider post game a couple of days ago when he talked about um, basically, you know, players uh, kind of working to execute and then coaching staff trying to give them the right plan to execute as well. And that that not always happening the way that you would have wanted. And to me, that, that's the question of the year. Like, where is that gap? Is it in your process? Is it in the information? Is it in the way the information is being delivered? Is it in the way the players are receiving it? Is the way the players are just not following it? Why aren't, if they're not following it, why aren't they following it? Um, is it just a personnel thing? Like, and, and it's never just one single thing. These things are always multifactorial, but, there are enough pieces at play there that are left significant questions there saying, okay, where here did we, where in here did we fall through the cracks? And that to me is, is going to be a big focal point. Like obviously there's going to be some personnel changes just because of oh, yeah. <laughs> and free agents and, and, and who the free agents are. But how does this team make sure that it gets, that it maximizes on the players that they have 
you know, that that's the other thing. And again, it, it could just be sometimes you have a dumb year in baseball and maybe this is a dumb year, but I mean, you know, statistically, and again, this is, uh, I haven't compared in recent data, but for a good chunk of this year, they weren't that dissimilar from the Orioles. There were a few more home runs from the Orioles, but some of the other offensive stats were, were fairly similar, but you know, there was better execution in certain times or the, the Orioles were able to, you know, match up and, and pair their, their impact hits together in, in a more effective way. And is that random? Is that something more? Again, th- that, that's sort of the bigger picture question and for people smarter than I mm. to sort through. But it, it's, it, it's really the crux of the issue. I mean, and maybe, look, maybe part of it is evaluative, right? Mm-hmm. Like where there's mistakes and evaluations made. And it could just be um, that the Blue Jays made the wrong bets on certain players. Uh, or or maybe not again. So I just think that after this year, you've got to throw everything uh, into the mix and say, okay, where really do a holistic? And the team has to be honest with itself too. Like, mm-hmm. where did we screw up here? Uh, because this is a, a franchise record payroll. This is uh, a team that was built to really patch up all the holes that undermined it in the past couple of years. And you know, so far that hasn't played out. And you know, you could have a good ending here, maybe, um, in terms of, uh, you know, the team getting hot and, and having a kind of, uh, uh, you know, unusual percentage outcome the way the Phillies did last year, uh, but maybe not. And, uh, and one way or the other, I think those questions are all valid. Yeah, and look, uh, that's really well said, Shy, and that kind of sets up, you know, the conversations we'll be having two weeks from now really, really well if we uh, if, if that's how this thing goes. The kind of postmortem is going to focus on uh, a lot of that. They do still have 15 games left. They do still have a chance of getting into the playoffs here, about a one-in-three chance based on Fangraph's playoff odds. So let's swing it back to some of the, the minor stuff that we'll look at this coming weekend. Obviously, who plays every day is going to be a big question here. Whit Merrifield has really struggled a lot last month Matt Chapman is back now earlier than expected um with Chapman's return do you see Whit Merrifield maybe being the the most prominent playing time loser here where Matt Chapman's going to slot in pretty much every day if his finger allows him to but they're going to want to keep Davis Schneider's bat in the lineup and try to find opportunities for Kevin Biggio still and those happen to come at second base and to some extent left field I mean, I think they're definitely going to want to continue to find opportunities for David Schneider and Kevin Biggio. I think one of the factors for Whit Merrifield is his health, right? Mm-hmm. He's, been, he's been playing through a groin problem for a bit, and I'm sure some of the numbers are tied to, to his health right now, and maybe that's why he, he slumped the way that, that he has slumped. Uh, but you know, and you saw it even in that in that ninth inning last night when he slid for the ball and then uh, had a cramp, and it just he, he he's clearly not 100% right. So um, you know, maybe for more sporadic playing time helps him recover a little bit and, and become a better version of himself. But I think that by and large, what you saw in the field last night is probably the lineup they want to go with for the time being. It's the uh, it's essentially the guys who are playing best at the moment right now uh, with an, and, and the guys that, uh, who are most in the Blue Jays' trust tree. So um, 
that there's not much time for experimenting. It's not much time for throwing stuff at the wall. It's it's who who gives us the who, really who's going best right now, and and that's what you have to ride. So I think that you know, Kevin Biggio with the way that he's played over an extended period has earned that. Uh, David Schneider with the way that he's performed over an extended period has earned that. Uh, you know, Whit Merrifield, I don't think they're going to run away from him. That's somebody who has been a key contributor for your team all year. Uh, so th- there will certainly be some combinations there, but a lot of guys are beat up and that will create opportunities for probably everybody to be called upon in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Everyone's going to need to have a, a moment here over these last 15 days or so. We'll see if Jose Barrios can get it started tonight on Roberto Clemente day, which uh, it's also Jose Barrios, Roberto Clemente bobblehead day. Shy quickly before I, I let you go. Uh, have you gotten a, a chance to, to ask Jose just how much this means to him? I actually haven't, uh, but uh, not not this year. But I know in years past, uh, it's obviously a deep and meaningful day for him. And you know, this is got to be an incredibly cool spot for him, knowing the competitor he is, knowing how tough he is, uh, to be able to pick up his team and celebrate Roberto Clemente on the same day. Uh, you know that that's clearly going to be something that he's going to want to do, uh, and, and clearly something that will. Uh, inspire him whether that translates or not you know the these things don't always you know have the 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 ideal storybook kind of finish so um, we'll see how it plays out but uh, I would think that you're going to see a, a pretty inspired version of Jose Barrios for a number of different reasons tonight. Yeah, we uh, we have to hope so. It'll be uh, I was going to say it'll be a fun one down at, at Rogers Center. That element of it will be fun. Who knows if it'll actually uh, be fun? I'm not holding out hope there. Shai Davidi, thanks so much for taking the time this morning, man. Uh, enjoy this series and uh, Shana Tova. Yeah, I appreciate it, Blake. Shai Davidi. Oh, sorry. Shai Davidi, uh, sports at MLB Insider. Uh, yeah, big couple games down here. Very, very big. And Shai and I kind of touched on some of the stuff that will be getting evaluated when the season ends. If the Toronto Blue Jays, well, they're not going to win the division. And even if they get into the playoffs, I don't know that anyone has super high confidence in the ability to make a run. But there are going to be some some tough evaluations and some tough decisions. Those have already started happening in Boston, the Red Sox visit Toronto today, one day after splitting a doubleheader with the New York Yankees and firing their general manager. Let's take a break and then let's get us the state of this Red Sox team heading into this series with Gabrielle Starr of the Boston Herald. A very chaotic day there. Heimblum kind of looks like he's getting a raw deal here, getting this hung on him for, hey, management told me to cut costs and build a farm system for long-term sustainability. I did that, and then they turned around and were like, well, you're not good yet uh, after basically four years. You don't turn around a whole thing uh, and then get right back to the tippy top that quickly. He'll be one of the most sought-after uh, executive free agents in the offseason, I think. Let's take a break. Let's talk to Gabrielle Starr about that and the state of the Red Sox heading into this series as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. 
I'm Blake Murphy, Boston Red Sox visiting for three here at Rogers Center. End of a 10-game homestand for the Toronto Blue Jays. That's seen dwindling attendance and the home team getting booed as they get swept by the Texas Rangers. Now, they had a little bit of trouble with the Boston Red Sox earlier this season. And then David Schneider changed everything. He's Seems to be the only guy in the the second the last two thirds of the season uh, that could change much of anything for this team. Uh, Jays entered that series at Boston, obviously uh, in a bad way against Boston and a bad way against the American League East, and then they were able to sweep that one. So the Red Sox are here now. The Red Sox certainly want to play spoiler. It'll be Brian Bayo, Chris Sale, and Nick Pavetta starting for Boston up against Jose Brios, Chris Bassett, and Hyunjin Ryu. The Red Sox are in an interesting spot. They were playing pretty solid baseball for a little while there. Um, they were enough on, they were on the periphery of the wildcard race enough that we had to at least mention them here and there in the standings updates. And then that kind of went awry. They've won just two of their last nine. And yesterday they fired general manager Heimblum, who uh, in my estimation has not done a bad job. I know that the Boston Red Sox have not had the level of big picture success that that franchise has been chasing and is accustomed to, but he turned around one of the worst farm systems in baseball, turned it into one of the better farm systems in baseball. They've graduated a number of interesting young players to the major league levels. They were able to retain Raphael Devers on uh, a long-term contract and yeah, they haven't been very good, but the marching orders for, or the, uh, the, you know, the, what was asked of, of Heim Bloom when he came in coming off shortly after the, the 2018 world series was cut payroll. Don't want to be a, a top three spending team all the time anymore. Um, improve the farm system, make this a little more sustainable long-term. And they've only made the playoffs once in his tenure. They made it to the ALCS. It was, uh, you know, a, a bit of a, Maybe a, a Pyrrhic victory in that it set the expectations a little higher, a, a little too quickly for what that turnaround was going to be like. So they have a bad year last year, and then they're hovering around 500 this season. It costs Heimblum his job. Uh, Gabrielle Starr of the Boston Herald, Red Sox reporter there, joins us now to help us sort through it and tee this series up. Gabrielle, how are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Welcome back. A busy day for you yesterday. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of set it up as I was bringing you in there. It was only four years. Heim Bloom did, at least from the outside, seem to do the big picture stuff that was asked of him, improve the farm system dramatically, cut costs while we're not competitive. Uh, what did you make of him being let go? Feels a little bit like the next person in his spot is going to benefit from uh from a pretty good hand being dealt coming in here yeah absolutely i think the exact term that i used on uh what was yesterday it's been a long week of thursday. Uh, th <laughs> thursday yeah uh i think the exact term i used last night in the uh the third thing i i wrote <laughs> about this uh is sacrificial lamb mm. Yeah, that's because, uh, you know, today is today is Rosh Hashanah and I'm Jewish and Chaim Bloom is Jewish and what else could be more fitting? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't want to go too deep down this particular thread, but did you it, it struck me as a little insensitive to make this decision two weeks before the end of the season right on a, a pretty important weekend for Jewish people. Um, did, did that rub you the wrong way at all? Do you think that might have rubbed Chaim Bloom the wrong way at all? 
Um, I mean, I will say uh, there. this is the third time in a row that the Red Sox have fired, dismissed their top baseball ops executive during the season. You know, Dombrowski, it's actually almost four years to the day of Dombrowski. Uh, they fired Charrington to hire Dombrowski in uh, August 2015. So this is a pattern. Uh, and in fact, Dombrowski's firing was while the Red Sox were playing the same team that they were playing <laughs> yesterday. Uh, so I don't think that the Rosh Hashanah thing, um, you know, really factored in. I do think that considering it is one of the two holiest days on the entire Jewish calendar, that they could have been a little bit more sensitive <laughs> to that. I mean, Boston is one of the largest Jewish communities in the world. Uh, he is a religious, kosher Jewish person. It's a huge part of his, you know, identity uh, things have been written about it during his baseball career. Um, there was an excellent piece on him called, I think it was like Chaim Bloom's Diamond Life, uh, in which he talks about keeping a jar of gefilte fish in his office. Uh, and I personally enjoyed talking about Jewish things, you know, when I would see him at the ballpark, you know, before Passover, joking about how it was nice that the Red Sox were on the road the entire holiday so that I wouldn't be tempted by ballpark food when I wasn't <laughs> allowed to eat leavened items. So I, I think it obviously was not intentional, uh, but I do think that there could have been more sensitivity given that they are not exactly in a time crunch at the moment. Uh, and it could have, you know, been done a few days earlier or it could have waited until Monday. Uh, so, yeah, yeah that, that's not, the part that's not the best look, at least. <laughs> yeah, especially, you know, with that fan base and in that community. And then, you know, from the outside, not the best look, because like we said off the top, Bloom did the, the big picture stuff that was asked, improved the farm system a lot, cut costs down uh, a little bit. And, and Gabriel, I, I wonder what, what you make of you. You mentioned, you know, the the last two executive changes, Dombrowski and Charrington, not only in season before the season, but also just four-year tenures. And when you look at that, obviously Theo Epstein set the bar very, very high for this franchise, but like they won a World Series under Dombrowski and pivoted pretty quickly. They're in a good spot to build from for whoever replaces Heim Bloom. Um, this, you know, the ownership groups kind of changing their mind quickly or, or wanting big results so quickly. Does that leave you a, a little less confident that whoever comes in next is, you know, going to be able to, to do this the proper way and take the long view and build something sustainable. Uh, so uh, to not to reference my own words yet again, but uh, <laughs> as I'm sure, you, as I'm sure you can understand, this has been the only thing consuming yes. my brain for about almost 24 hours. Now, this is just another example of the Red Sox kind of, being hot and cold, not knowing exactly what they want or what the top priority is. And I think a lot of that is dictated on the fact that they basically wait. It seems like as soon as things start to reach kind of a desperate place, uh, they, they kind of panic and pivot. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, some of the years of Charrington's tenure were the worst in Red Sox history. I mean, in 2012, it was just one of the most appalling seasons like I've ever seen. And it happened to be Fenway's 100th birthday. 
And instead you have this whole focus on a team with bad attitudes and a manager that, you know, was gone at the end of the year and Bobby Valentine and all of these kinds of things. And yes, he turned it around in 2013, but as we all know, that was, that was not the expected situation and that, and he drew a lot of parallels. There were a lot of parallels drawn coming into this season to that of, you know, you've just lost, you know, you've got a ton of kind of, veteran proven free agents who are on the older side, but have a lot of experience and a lot of accolades between them. Then, you know, they pivot to Dombrowski. They're in win now mode uh, and they're winning and they're winning and they're spending. And every year they get further into the playoffs. They make three division titles and each year they get further and further. And finally they win that franchise record, 108 wins in the regular season. They just bulldoze the competition in the postseason. Uh, and then they panic again. They're like, well, you know, it seems like we're in a good place with the fans because we just gave them 108 regular season wins and we're bringing back most of this roster in 2018. So, like, I think we can kind of pump the brakes. And it doesn't matter that Joe Kelly and Craig Kimball are gone and we don't have a closer and our bullpen is significantly weaker. And if you look at 2018, the bullpen actually wasn't, super, super great, and what they had going for them was a starting rotation regularly going seven, eight, nine innings, which they also don't have this year. Hmm. Uh, so they did, they, you know, they basically cut the purse strings, and Dombrowski's kind of a sitting duck, a lame duck. Then they fire him, and they reprioritize again. And now that they are putting up terrible attendance records, and this week actually had the worst Fenway attendance for a Red Sox Yankees game since May of 99. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, and part of that is the horrible weather, but part of it is also nobody really wants to see two teams duking it out to see who's going to finish fourth and who's going to finish <laughs> last. Uh, that's why the tickets were going for a dollar before fees. Um, you know, you, you just kind of look at them and you say, you keep changing your mind about what you want. Do you want, to be the Red Sox, or do you want to be lowercase the Red Sox? <laughs> like, because there's no trophy for having the best farm system unless you use that farm system to build you a major league team. And that was the disconnect in the Chaim Bloom era. And I don't think all of it is his fault. I think some of it is the organization was prioritizing other things as much as they want to say they were prioritizing championships the actions speak louder than those repeated canned words. And then I think part of it was that he wasn't entirely ready for Boston. Mm. And that's to be expected because he came from the Rays and they are maybe the most non-Boston team besides like the A's. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough transition. (laughs) You know, just, just, and I said this when the, when the Xander thing was happening, the Bogarts thing, the last year or so, you know, you have David Ortiz at his own hall of like pre hall of fame press availability. He's using that time to talk to reporters about how important it is that they, they pay both Devers and Bogarts. (laughs) You have Pedro Martinez saying the culture of championship that we cultivated over the last 20 years is going to go away. If you don't have links to those championships, that's the only thread that's connecting you 
if you're not actually trying super hard to build a contender in the way of like flexing those muscles, you know, paying a Manny Ramirez and, and attempting to trade for an Alex Rodriguez and, you know, yes, bullet dodged. But the Mm. point being like you doing that crazy stuff that they did, that got them to those points and also having these homegrown players, these amazing talents, these clubhouse leaders, if you don't have that, so you've got these players, and at times it was almost like, why are the why is the Red Sox why are the Red Sox paying you to be like quote unquote special assistants with these lifetime contracts to be affiliated? You brought the championships there. You brought the first championship there in eighty six years. Why aren't they listening to you? Don't you know better? Like you were here first. You were winning a championship in a city that hadn't had one since. Kyan Bloom's great grandfather was alive. And, not- and again, I'm not blaming him for that, but you combine an organization that doesn't know exactly what it wants and is sending mixed messages and changing their priorities, and a guy who had never been in the top leadership role before and comes from one of the smallest markets. And it's just, it's, he was set up to fail from the beginning, even even the stuff that wasn't his fault, losing Cora two months in for the Astros thing, and then you know, being told, well, you don't have to trade Mookie, but you have to find a way to shed salary and a lot of it. It's like it was an impossible task. It does seem like it was an impossible task and and a short time frame to execute it all in. So, um, look, this next, you know, they won four World Series over 15 years. They've only made the playoffs once in the last five now. If this next general manager, whoever takes over, uh, if they are going to build a winner, something they are going to have in addition to the strong farm system, something they're going to have in their advantages. There are a couple, you know, in a season that hasn't given a, a lot of bright spots for Red Sox fans. There are a couple young guys on this team really, really performing in, you know, Devers, Tristan Cassis, uh, Brian Bayo, who we're going to see tonight. And a guy who last time you were on with me, Gabrielle, you were like, yeah, say Don Raffaella, like, like he's a guy, he could be up soon. And now he's up and contributing, um, as much as this has not been a super optimistic season for the Red Sox and yesterday's news is, uh, is dour. It's, it sucks. And it seems unfortunate for, you know, big picture faith in the ownership direction, having that couple of young players to kind of hang hopes on for the next little while. How important has that been? And just how good has that trio plus Raphael of young guys been for this Boston team? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that's kind of funny. I actually texted my editor on Wednesday night being like, I want to write something kind of examining the pros and cons of, not the pros and cons really, but kind of the the arguments for and against firing firing Chaim Bloom. And of course, the next morning, I'm like, well, I guess, <laughs> you know, we waited too long on this. Um, and I, I literally said to my editor in my text, which I shared on my Twitter, they have made a habit of firing guys at the end of this before the end of the season. So we should probably, if I'm going to do this, you should probably let me do it this weekend. And then, you know, the next day was yesterday. Um, the funny thing is that the Red Sox are, as you said, they, they are in a better position than I feel like people realize, you know, because I mean, at least unlike the Yankees and they're sticking with Brian Cashman for the 95th year in a row, <laughs> despite not winning a pennant, since 2009, which, you know, George Steinbrenner is just continuously rolling over in his grave now. Uh, The Red Sox have this young core. They have, according to Baseball America, the number five farm system in the game. 
they have financial flexibility. So like like Dombrowski, whoever takes over for Bloom has a full war chest to play with. He's got a loaded arsenal, and that is something Bloom did not have. You know, Charrington set things up for success for Dombrowski. Dombrowski was able to just kind of enter guns blazing because, well, the guns were there. And you have this young core, and I would add, you know, Jaron Duran to this. I would mm-hmm. add Wilger Abreu to this, who was acquired in the Christian Vasquez trade last summer, which I don't think, you know, people talk about the trade deadlines with Bloom, and, and he was definitely not the most aggressive guy at the trade deadlines and during the offseason. You know, if you're losing free agent signings to the Tampa Bay Rays, you know, maybe you want to push a little harder. <laughs> uh, but he, you know, that's been a great trade. They got a, 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 a really solid infield depth guy in Emmanuel Valdez, and they got a really great hitter, and solid defender in Wilger Abreu. And both of those guys debuted this year. Sadon debuted this year, and he's the first player in franchise history to double and homer in back-to-back games within the 14 games of first career games. You know, and he is just a stunning defender. He can play incredible, like, highlight reel defense in center field. He's a good infielder, too. They're, you know, they're having him play shortstop. He's He's starting games now, which, of course, is partially because they're basically deciding that they are out of it and they can, you know, just pivot. Kothis has been just a a great talent, and he, I think, has the makings of a clubhouse leader. The way that he talks to us, the way that he sees the game, and, and the way that he knows the game is really impressive, especially for a guy who is like 23 years old. He just has a really good baseball mind. He's a thoughtful guy. Um, and then you have Devers, and you know Devers is somebody who is never satisfied with his with his performance, and that's not even to talk about the pitching. You know, Tanner Houck, Garrett Whitlock, um, Bayo, you know, Bayo, is someone Pedro Martinez thinks can be better than he was. He thinks that he's told, he told me in spring training, I think he's more talented than I was at his point in his career. He thinks that he could win multiple Cy Youngs and there has been growth. There have been growing pains, but he is, you know, I mean, not that they have a great history, a track record of developing homegrown starters, but he is, the best starting pitching talent to debut for this team in a very long time. Um, And, and so that's, that's, that's exciting stuff where, where I, my, I was going to argue in the column, I didn't have time to write that, you know, they should give Kyan Bloom this off season. And if he couldn't go big, this off season when he has this young core, when he has the, the money to spend, when he has the farm system to, to make trades and make things happen, then you say, okay, so maybe he's not the guy, but instead somebody else is going to come in and immediately be able to kind of, instead of hit the ground running, just trampoline the team to another level, um, kind of in the way that, you know, Brian Cashman inherited a great, young core when he became the Yankees top dog. 
Well, I ha- look, it's it's a lot to look forward to for Red Sox fans, unfortunately, for, for us here on a Toronto radio show. And, and here's what I'll say is I hope it all clicks for them Monday when they play the Texas Rangers and could do the Blue Jays some favors in this playoff race. Uh, but no <laughs> sooner than that. Uh, Gabriel Starr, Boston Herald, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning and an early Shana Tova. Thank you so much. And not to you too. And to everybody listening and, you know, it's, it'll be, it'll be an interesting weekend, no matter what, because this team has tons of surprises. Yeah. Good and bad. Yeah. Same with this blue Jays team. Let's hope it goes a certain way. Uh, Gabrielle star. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye. Gabrielle star of the Boston Herald, Red Sox reporter there. A lot of great stuff on the, the Heim bloom, uh, decision in Boston up over at the uh, at the Boston Herald and look that's a lot of Red Sox talk but the Red Sox are here and this has a major impact on the American League East in years moving forward uh, they just they're moving off of a really well thought of executive they're going to have a new GM in there who's probably going to spend to complement a top five system and some good young players look it's uh, it highlights a little bit for you that stuff does not get easier in the American League East, the, the Baltimore Orioles are calling up more prospects to help with their playoff push. The Rays are always the Rays, and at some point, the Red Sox and Yankees uh, will find their way back into the AL East mix as well. So uh, it does kind of highlight that your windows can be small if you're a team like the Blue Jays in the American League East. And if you were set up to win a division this year, not just sneak into the playoffs, you better hope you at least sneak in the playoffs and make some noise because those windows don't uh, stay open very long without you you know, continuing to spend and develop to keep them open. We're going to take a break. We're going to take a hard pivot to the National League when we come back. Uh, Andy McCullough, senior writer at The Athletic, he has some Jays takes, had some Jays takes early in the year that have actually proven pretty correct. But he also has a book coming out on Clayton Kershaw early next year. And I'm fascinated to pick his brain on, hey, you wrote most of a book about a player that'll come out next year. And now you just sit back and wait for these final chapters to write themselves down the stretch here. Clayton Kershaw, a fascinating guy uh, to to take a look at. Andy McCullough of The Athletic joins us next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkus Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That song uh, pretty pretty much clicks in how everyone feels right now. And there was a nice rendition of that on Jay's Twitter uh, the other day. Um, not going well for the Toronto Blue Jays of late. They find themselves a game and a half back of the wild card. 15 to go here. And no more left against the two teams they're chasing in Texas and Seattle. Things are a little more smooth over in Los Angeles where the Dodgers have a monster lead in the NL West and in, yeah, they're not catching the Atlanta Braves for the best record there. They know what they're doing. They're trying to put themselves in a position to reach the NLCS where they'll visit the Braves in the best space possible. Weird stuff happens in baseball, but this is the most confident I think I've probably ever felt in what a league championship matchup could be Atlanta and the Dodgers. Key to that, of course, is Clayton Kershaw. Annie McCullough, senior writer at The Athletic, joins us now. He has a book coming out in the spring called The Last of His Kind, a book on Clayton Kershaw. Uh, Andy, good morning. Uh, look, I, I know that the book is not done because there is still uh, uh, playoffs to play here. Um, but I guess, how are you feeling with the bulk of the work done and now you're ending up in the air out of your control here? 
Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel fine. Um, thank you for, for mentioning the book. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, we shall see what happens over the next couple months about the, um, you know, how, how the like last chapter goes and all that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot that could, you know, happen, I think over these next, however many months, if Kershaw wants to keep going, all that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, we'll, hopefully we'll know, you know, before this comes out next May. Uh, yeah, and and I wanted to ask you about about 2024 because he's been a little uh, non-committal on it. Uh, doesn't sound like he's gotten more committal on it, and who knows? Maybe it, it depends how this offseason uh, plays out. But w- what has I know you've been working on this, Andy, for for about two years now, and the process of you know working on this book and getting to know him and getting to know the the actors around him, all while he's still an active player. W- what's that process been like for you? How, how close? Um, have you been able to, to get to Kershaw in telling this story, not just of him, but, you know, him relative to this moment in baseball? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I mean, I covered the Dodgers for several years for the Los Angeles mm-hmm. Times, and so there was a relationship there. I mean, yeah, I've spent um, a lot of time with him for it, um, you know, both in the winter and during um, this season. I've talked to like 200 other people Ooh. for it. So, um, yeah, I mean, just a lot of. A lot of texting people, uh, I would say, <laughs> not all of whom respond. But, yeah, just a lot of, you know, texting random people. It's, it's like remembering some guys. You know, I, I recommend that for any reporter who wants to write a book or and uh, remember some guys. Just go through baseball reference and start texting people. You'll be like, wow, Randy Wolf, that's awesome. Yeah, I think uh, we have a colleague here at Sportsnet named Alex Wong who has a, a book on the making of the Blue Jays coming out soon, or the, the making of the Raptors rather coming out soon, called Prehistoric. Okay. And it sounds like that was the the process too. Is like, yeah, let's remember some guys and then turn them into interviews and uh, and see where it goes. Um, so in addition to, I'm sure we're going to learn a, a lot about Clayton Kershaw specifically when when this book, The Last of His Kind, comes out. Um, but you you have kind of tweeted about this and you know the the tagline on the book, the burden of greatness, uh, how to change without losing yourself um what what have you discovered about what makes kershaw and pitchers like that who are able to sustain that level for so long um what makes those guys ticks and and what keeps those guys special yeah i mean uh, i can't can't get too deep i don't want to get too deep into the book this far out from it coming out but i i will say that i think like um, and it's not, it, you know, it's not the young man's fault, but like, I think like what happened with George Kirby last week is kind of indicative of how the sport has, um, you know, changed, like sort of in the way the pitchers are trained, uh, is different, right? You know, so George Kirby, right. He like, he like hit his 90 pitch limit. And after the game, he kind of, you know, said the quiet part loud where he was like, I probably shouldn't have been in the game that deep. Um, and that's not like, you know, whatever he got sort of drilled for that, but it's kind of like, that's how he's been taught to play baseball. That's how pitchers are raised now to sort of like optimize and maximize rather than, um, you know, trying to like extend themselves out. You know, there's very few pitchers who are brought up with the idea that like, Hey, you should be trying to finish the game. It's more like you should pitch for as well as you can, as hard as you can for as long as you can, not, you should conserve things, you know, to, to get deeper into games. And I think, you know, Kershaw is um, one of, you know, I, I believe he is kind of, you know, really one of the last guys to have been brought up that way. So this isn't as Kershaw specific, but obviously he is the face of this era of Dodgers baseball. Yeah. And they're about to play in their 11th consecutive uh, major league baseball playoffs. Now they only have the one world series during that stretch. I know Kershaw in particular had two really good starts in the actual world series to maybe shake off some of the, you know, Hey, he doesn't bring it in the playoffs kind of thing. When you look at this era of Dodgers baseball, an 11th consecutive playoff appearance at a time where that is, that's so hard to do with budgets and farm systems and things yeah. like that. Um, how, 
how imperative is it that they add another World Series to this era? Do you think that that level of elite consistency, even with only one title, can kind of, you know, hold up on its own without a second ring? Yeah, I mean, I think it just depends on it depends on who the audience is, right? I think like if you talk to uh, sort of casual fans in some way, the way that like the Braves in the 1990s and early 2000s, they're remembered as like not a like not failure is kind of strong, but almost like oh wow, they made the world playoffs that many times. The only one won World Series, and if you talk to people in baseball, you're like that was the greatest juggernaut ever assembled. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like if you, you know, it just depends on like how much you, how much stock you put into about the sort of fickleness of the postseason, right? Like I think a lot of like you take the Blue Jays, right? The 92, 93 Blue Jays are remembered as like close to a, you know, dynasty, right? Like, they, you know, back to back is very hard to do, but like talking to people in baseball, what the Braves did in the nineties is like far more impressive, if that makes sense, right? To be there year after year after year is really, really challenging. But for fans, right, the point is to your team to win. Like you want <laughs> the team to, to win the World Series, you know? It's So it's kind of like you're serving different masters almost, you know what I mean? Yeah, that, that makes a, a lot of sense. And yeah, the Braves, you know, 11, hey, they, it was ex- actually, it was exactly 11 playoff appearances in a row with yeah. one World Series in there. Although they had, they also had 14 and 15 years um, because of course they had to make the World Series for the Jays to beat them a little before that era uh, started right. there. Uh, so Andy, I know, I, I look, I know you're a, a national writer now, a senior writer at The Athletic, so you're not on the team beat day to day, but obviously you're a huge baseball fan. You're paying attention to the, the way things look. Uh, how do you think the Dodgers size up the this year in an NL where look, the Dodgers look incredibly good. They have two MVP candidates. They have Clayton Kershaw, um, but the Braves look like maybe one of the deepest and most balanced teams we've seen in in the last couple of years. Uh, How do you, how do the, the, sorry, how do the Dodgers measure up with the Braves in your estimation right now? Yeah. I mean, I think the Braves are the best team uh, in the sport and it's going to be pretty challenging for anyone to beat them just because their lineup is so deep. You know, their starting rotation is obviously pretty strong, uh, you know, especially if they can get Kyle right back. And I think, you know, with the Dodgers, their pitching is just really suspect right now. Their starting pitching is really problematic. You know, Kershaw has been, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> sorry, that was bad radio. Uh, Kershaw has been dealing with um, you know, some shoulder trouble for the past, you know, couple weeks, really for the past really since the second half he's having you know his shoulder is just not generating the sort of sort of velocity he's hoping for julio arias is gone you know kind of he's on admin leave uh, after being arrested for domestic violence walker bueller got shut down you know so they're really going to be relying on like bobby miller ryan pepio you know guys you have not seen pitch in the postseason for them before you know lance lynn uh you know who is obviously you know had a very good career but it tends to give up like two or three home runs every game. And so they're going to have to have a really tight leash on their starting pitchers, which is just if they can get into the AL, the NLCS and face the Braves, it's just going to be really challenging in a seven game series to get all their pitching through, you know, Atlanta, but we'll see, you know, stranger things have happened. Certainly have. And you can shorten games and bullpen days and all that stuff. You can, you can chip your way away at it. And Hey, you might have the MVP at the top of your lineup in Mookie Betts. And I, and I bring Mookie Betts up because Andy, we, we were just talking to Gabrielle Starr of the Boston Herald about Boston's decision yeah. to move off of Heim Bloom. And I know you wrote about this uh, at The Athletic yesterday that the Mookie Betts trade, however much Heim Bloom, you know, got told to make that trade or just got told to do. 
do a bunch of things where the only way to accomplish it maybe was to trade Mookie Betts. That is kind of going to define him a little bit, but also really define this era of the Red Sox as well. What did you make of Heim Bloom being let go by the Red Sox? And obviously, you know, that Mookie Mookie Betts trade is awful, but how much of that do you... Do you hang on Bloom versus just, hey, that's where the Red Sox ownership group wanted to go, and he's kind of the scapegoat here? Yeah, I mean, he, I'd say, I don't know, put doing math on it, like 75% is on the ownership group. I mean, the, the majority, the overwhelming majority is on the, on the ownership group just because, like, it, it, it's not like High Bloom came in there and was like, guys, I've got a great idea. We should <laughs> trade Mookie Betts. You know, the team had been considering trading him the summer before. They came pretty close, you know, uh, when Dave Dombrowski was still, uh, you know, at the helm to making a deal. Like, there was a, you know, concerted effort from the ownership group to get under the luxury tax after, you know, having spent so much in 2018 and 2019. And so, um, you know, you can criticize High Bloom for, like, executing the trade in a way that he didn't get back an immediate impact player, you know, uh, I, as part of this is, you know, we, we forget it at the time, but Mookie Betts was, you know, had only a year left before free agency. Um, so, you know, what exactly they were, you know, you couldn't get like a mega package for him. It seemed like at the time um, in the way that like, for example, Juan Soto generated because you were getting two and a half seasons of him. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just feel like, the era was so confusing to me in that the, the organization seemed unclear what they were trying to be, if they were trying to contend, if they were trying to bridge, if they were trying to, you know, sort of take a step back. Like it was just a very sort of muddled era. And, you know, there's certainly valid criticisms of some of the stuff that Heimblum did, but I just kind of felt like he was set up to fail by their ownership group. It does. It feels that way to me too. And, and again, from outside, but Hey, turn that farm system around. They've graduated yeah. some, some interesting young players to the major leagues already. And, and whoever, I guess the, the biggest thing I take away from it is uh, short of ownership being like, Hey, you got to trade the next Mookie bets. Whoever's coming into this role has a, a pretty decent foundation to start from. Certainly better than the one bloom came into. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways for sure, but um, you know, but also like Han bloom, inherited a team with Mookie Betts true too. That's right? very fair. And like ownership could have just said like, okay, let's sign Mookie Betts. Like, Oh, he doesn't want to sign for 300 million. Okay. How about 350 million? You know, like it's like, it, that's the thing is it, yes. I, I do feel like the organization is in a decent place, but like before they had Mookie Betts and now <laughs> they don't, he's not the sort of player you should ever let go. And I wrote this, you know, the other day, like there's definitely reasons to look at <clears throat> you know, where the Red Sox are and feel like, okay, I can see like a path to how they're contending. Like I, I get it. I see what the plan is, but you also can look and be like, this team is pretty far behind the Rays and the Orioles, you know, and let alone, you know, the Blue Jays who like have been obviously had a pretty frustrating season, but like are playing better than the Red Sox and the Yankees who historically have been at the top of the division. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's challenging in, in the East and, um, you know, yeah, they're, they're in a weird spot. So you mentioned the, the blue Jays let's pivot there. Uh, this is a team that a lot of people pick to win the American league East, maybe even make the world series. If we looked at the athletics writers poll before the season, fan graphs, wherever um, there was a lot yeah. of blue Jays making the world series. And certainly at, not many questions about the blue Jays, even making the playoffs. Now, 
you you were not one of those people who was super super high on this team. I believe you referred to them as paper tigers to Ken Rosenthal early <laughs> in the year. He's sharing our private text now. He, he told me he's going to write that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So exposed, and you're here on Toronto radio. But hey, it yeah, turns out you you were correct. Um, at least yeah. in in what we've seen so far. What was it about this Blue Jays team that that gave you pause a little bit relative to where other people's expectations were? I think just sort of looking at the um, looking at the way the team had performed in the previous couple of years with pretty similar bases of talent. Now, like obviously, I know that they you know they they bolstered the defense this past uh, off season. You know, it seemed like run prevention was going to be at more of a premium, but the core of the team was still the same. And uh, you know, uh, this this quality doesn't really help me in other facets of life. But I'm kind of a pessimist. Like I kind of bet against things I haven't seen before. And you know, I wasn't. I didn't you know, look like I'm not a genius. I picked the Yankees to win the division, you know? So like, it's not like I, you know, have some sort of like Kreskin like ability, but it was more just like, uh, you know, the regression last year with Vladimir Guerrero was pretty concerning, um, was not a thing that, you know, you felt super, like, I wasn't totally sure what, uh, you're going to be getting out of him moving forward. And again, he's having, you know, even a worse year this year, you know, you're George Springer's a year older. Um, you know, Matt Chapman is a, is a very good player, but is so streaky at the plate. You know, uh, the rotation seems like it's been fine outside of, you know, Manoa kind of combusting. Um, so yeah, I think it was more just like looking at the challenges of the East looking at the way that the, the Blue Jays has been, had been such a talented group. You know, they might've been the best team in the, uh, in the East in 2021 and kind of like waited until the second half to get it together. There were similar issues last year. So it was just kind of being pessimistic about a core that hadn't really put it together. Um, and, you know, it seems like, I mean, whatever, they could still obviously make the playoffs. There's still, <laughs> you know, two weeks of games left, but it's kind of just been, the same old story, it seems like. Yeah, it certainly has. And this four-game sweep at the hands of the Rangers where they get outscored 35-9 to nine at home and they're getting yeah, booed brutal. for the first time in forever, it's uh, it's tough to not be pessimistic now, uh, Andy. I wanted to ask you, I, I don't know how much of the series you got to, got to see, but I know that um, when he got called up, you wrote up Evan Carter. Um, initial impressions from Evan Carter, he seems to have given this Rangers team, uh, obviously this was the Corey Seager series and Jonah Heim series, right. but Evan Carter looks like already just <laughs> turn 21 uh, could be a guy who can help this team. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's so young, obviously, you know, he's second round pick from a couple of years ago. Um, and, and they're calling him up sort of out of desperation, right? Because they Garcia went down, but he is a top prospect in the sport. You know, he's a guy, um, you know, with a pretty high ceiling. He was like a top 25 guy coming into this year and he kind of held his own in Frisco you know, was able to, uh, like, he gets on base a ton, which is a huge sort of quality and something that, you know, can, they, they're hopeful will translate as he, you know, he sticks around. He'll probably, you know, look, he's, he's, he's 21 years old. He'll get exposed at some point. But, like, when you kind of show up with the, the energy that he still has late in a year, that can, that can help a club. And, um, and it also helps, like, when Corey Seager's healthy, like, he's the best hitter in the world. So <laughs> that, that makes it pretty challenging to, to deal with. Yeah, it does. It's, uh, it hasn't been, I mean, it's been fun to watch, but it has not been fun to watch these last couple of days. Sure. Uh, Andy, before I let you go, a quick peek at the other wild card race. San Francisco, Arizona, Cincinnati, Miami, all just half a game apart for that final wild card spot. Um, is this when Major League Baseball tweaked kind of the rules? Hey, no more tiebreaker games. We're going to add extra wild card. This was the plan, right? Like this is this is exactly what Major League Baseball was hoping for in both leagues uh, with these tight down to the wire wild card races. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, I mean, if you want to watch mediocre baseball that matters, do I have the race for you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, yes, this this is what they wanted. And so uh, these teams are not particularly great, but they're all trying their hardest. And it's, you know, it's and it's a it's going to be a fun race to sort of follow down the end. I mean, I think the the what the what the sport really wanted is kind of actually what's going on in the American League. We're like. You have three teams, right, in uh, in like Toronto, Seattle, Texas, who you could conceivably see like winning the World Series. There's enough talent there in each of those clubs. It's really, you know, you could you could it's not, you don't have to squint too hard to see a World Series. I think in the National League, all of those clubs are kind of significantly more limited than the teams ahead of them, so it's just kind of less appealing. But we'll see. I, I think Arizona is probably the best of the bunch, but you know, who knows? Yeah, who who knows indeed. And, you know, personally, I, I've got my, my hat in Cincinnati's corner for the Joey Votto of it all here in Canada. But, uh, yeah, it's, sure, it's sure. easy to easy to pick your favorite between those. And, hey, whoever gets the right to, I don't know, maybe one of them could beat Milwaukee, but I don't know. I don't think any of them are beating Atlanta uh, or the Dodgers. Uh, Andy McCullough, senior writer at The Athletic, the last of his kind, a Clayton Kershaw book coming out next spring. Uh, thanks for taking the time this morning, and I, I very much hope you get a, a fun final couple chapters here uh, as Kershaw <laughs> plays. I don't know, maybe his last season, maybe not, but, but certainly a fun playoff run ahead for the Dodgers. Yeah, we should see. Thanks for so much for having me. Andy McCullough of The Athletic, the last of his kind, Clayton Kershaw and the Burden of Greatness. That'll be out next spring. We can already bookmark it and things like that if you check out uh, Andy McCullough's Twitter or just search the last of his kind, Clayton Kershaw and the Burden of Greatness, wherever you get your books. Uh, No Burden of Greatness on the Toronto Blue Jays this week. Uh, Burden of being very, very bad, getting swept four straight games by the Texas Rangers, 35-9 to on aggregate. You'll hope to turn it around tonight. We're going to take a break. We're going to, once again, put the focus on David Schneider because he's been one of the only positives going on for this team. We're going to talk to Patrick Dubuque of Baseball Prospectus, who is also a Seattle-based guy, so we'll see what uh, he thinks of the Mariners-Rangers having seven still ahead and that side of this wildcard race. I will also play you a, a little advanced clip of Jose Brios talking to Hazel May. It's going to The full interview will air on the broadcast tonight. Jose Brios, of course, getting the start on Roberto Clemente Day, Roberto Clemente being immensely important to the people of Puerto Rico and the history of baseball. Uh, Jose Brios, um, his dad, very much looking up to Roberto Clemente. This start meaning a lot to Jose Brios and Jose Brios himself meaning a lot to the people and the baseball fans of Puerto Rico. Uh, so we'll take a break. We'll hear that. We'll talk to Patrick Dubuque as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, Jay's need to win. They need it real bad. They'll turn to Jose Barrios tonight. He's been pretty tremendous this year. If you look back to last year, certainly that's a bit of a surprise. If you look to how he performed in the World Baseball Classic, certainly a surprise. There are some flags early, but he has been tremendous. Uh, That surely means a lot to him, the ability to turn that around, get back to being one of the most consistent pitchers in all of baseball. Uh, Tonight probably means an awful lot to him, too. It is Roberto Clemente Day around baseball. Uh, Jose Barrios will wear Roberto Clemente's 
number 21 jersey as he takes the hill on Roberto Clemente Day. Barrios, of course, uh, Puerto Rican, like Clemente was a pretty special day for him. Now, of course, the Blue Jays absolutely need a win, and that's going to be the the primary talking point and, and the biggest focus of this game and, and surely Jose Brios's biggest focus uh, when he takes the hill. But he did speak about just how much this means to him uh, a little earlier. This full interview will air later today on Blue Jays Central and during the Blue Jays broadcast. But we've got a little clip from it uh, today to help set up uh, just how much tonight means to Jose Brios. Here's Jose Brios speaking to uh, Hazel May about getting the start on Roberto Clemente Day. Because I never had opportunity to pitch in that day. So I've been seeing players using 21 on Roberto, Roberto Clemente Day from 2020, but I never, you know, I just pitched, so I, I never pitched in, in that day. So tomorrow I'm going to have the opportunity, and I, I mean, honestly, I feel like weird, but at the same time I feel happy and, you know, proud about it. What is your earliest memory, Jose, of, you know, your father or your mother or someone telling you about Roberto Clemente? I mean, in Puerto Rico, uh, all the people, but mostly, you know, baseball players talk about Roberto Clemente. And I think he's, he, Roberto, he's my dad hero. So I've been growing up uh, hearing about, yeah, every day. So, yeah, we know we know a little bit more about Roberto Clemente. Uh, also, I think he's, uh, Roberto Clemente is a hero for Vladis' dad. So, I mean... I feel proud about it, like, you know, what Roberto did on the field and out of the field make us the Puerto Rican and also Latin player so proud of him. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. What have you done in the past, Jose, or what do you plan on doing to continue that legacy Roberto Clemente left behind? I mean, first of all, be, be, be me. I mean, be great human. That, that's what he, he be, like, great human out of the field. So starting with that, I think we can... We can continue. We can keep continuing with that uh, uh, legacy. What, what he brings to us. So obviously, you have to do good at, on the field. But you know that's part of our, our work, and we we love what we do. Is play baseball, and that's no problem for me. Like I, I can work every day to be ready every five days to do my work there. But the, the most important thing is just be human, great you know, great great person, and always try to be for you know for. Whoever is, you know, in your side. That was Jose Brios. Uh, you can check out that full interview with Hazel May uh, on Blue Jays Central a little bit later. He'll get the ball against Brian Bayo as the Blue Jays try to turn this thing around. As it stands right now, they are a game and a half behind Seattle, two and a half behind Texas. Their latest Fangraphs playoff odds down to 33.6%, which is the lowest it's been uh, in a little while here. Doesn't feel great, but Seattle and Texas still have seven games left against each other. And Patrick Dubuque of baseball prospectus, who is Seattle based. Uh, he told me a little earlier before he came on, he actually feels a little better about the blue Jays chances than maybe people here in Toronto feel uh, Patrick. Good morning. Please be the ray of sunlight for this blue Jays fan base today. Morning, Blake. I don't know if I'll be the ray of sunlight so much as I'm the absence of darkness. <laughs> <laughs> that's hey, that's a big upgrade, man. Absence of darkness is is huge right now. Well, uh, you know, you know, they, people always say that you should watch the games, especially for those stat nerds. You always watch the games. Get out of your get out of your mom's basement. And the thing is that, you know, when it comes to the Blue Jays right now, not watching the games, not having to sit through that, maybe actually is better. At least, if not from a fandom perspective, at least a sanity perspective. 
uh, over what's happened over the last, uh, say, half a week. Yeah, it hasn't been great. Outscored thirty-five to nine, lose four consecutive games. Um, but you, you did in seriousness. You, you did tell me that you know you feel a little bit better about the Jays' chances than than maybe the overall vibe is, and some of that is you know not living and breathing with every single inning and at bat as a. Uh, as the fans do, but also, you know, you know, this Mariners team pretty well and it's a tight race and they've still got seven left against Texas. How much of, when you look at the, this AL wildcard picture and let's leave Houston out of it just, just for the sake of this, but Texas and Seattle having so many games left against each other. um, Is that a primary reason why, why you look at this and think, Hey, yeah, the Jays could really realistically still make it in here. I mean, that's part of it. I, when you watch a team lose the way the Blue Jays have lost recently, it's hard not to feel like those four games count for more than four games, right? You know, losing 10 to nothing feels like you lost two games, but it's just one. It's the same amount in, in the standings as if you lose three to two, right? Um, the perspective, I think, is the fact that as, as bad as it's been this week for the Blue Jays, you don't have to go back too far to find that the fans of both those other teams felt exactly the same way. Uh, before this this last week, the Mariners had just dropped seven and nine to put themselves out of the playoff race. Uh, before their recent five game winning streak, the Rangers went four and sixteen. <laughs> you know, imagine how miserable that felt. I, I think that we're at an exact moment where it's got to feel pretty miserable, and it might get worse because you know it's baseball. But this, I don't think we're. I don't think this is the end. This has been this kind of a roller coaster on them for all three of these franchises. I don't think we're stopped. I don't think we're done. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of baseball left to be played, right? It's uh, that that's kind of the, uh, I mean, that feels like a threat right now, but it's also, uh, it's also uh, <laughs> a nice positive thing. So um, look, one of the nice positive things that this Toronto Blue Jays team has had going for them in the second half of the season. And Hey, interesting time to be playing the Red Sox since David Schneider debuted against the Red Sox and had a monster series that kind of changed things. It helped turn things around when the Jays had hit a little bit of a lull uh, early in August. Now he's cooled off a little bit since you wrote your piece at baseball prospectus, um, but you did write a piece earlier this week at baseball prospectus. Davis Schneider is a belated launch angle revolutionary. And you went into some of what is helping him succeed right now. And yeah, you pulled it a little bit of, Hey, do I believe this? Do I believe that? What do we make of this? Uh, when you look at David and we'll get into some of those specifics momentarily, but when you look at what Davis Schneider's done, as a whole, both in the minor leagues this this season and over a 30-game stretch or so with the Blue Jays. Um, your colleague, Jeff Paternostro, uh, said coming into the season, he probably does just enough with the bat, how he handles it, and being direct to the ball, that he probably has a role where he'll stick in the majors for a couple years, but it didn't sound like overly robust when you look at that and you look at what he's done since um you know how much of your uh, how much has your opinion of david schneider the prospect changed this year i can't think of a more stunning transformation uh, of a single player's profile in a single year than schneider's had he, he basically looked like one of those uh fourth outfielders who doesn't really do anything particularly well but is solid in every aspect just a little bit of power a little bit of average just just enough um, and, you know, could play multiple positions. He seemed like one of those guys. He seemed like um, one of those bench bats that used to exist back when teams didn't carry 13 pitchers and that teams don't really actually have anymore, um, especially given that he has the mustache of one of those 80s <laughs> kind of uh, one of those 80s outfielders. Um, and 
then he just decided instead of doing that, he would just become the most extreme hitter that we've seen uh, over 100 plate appearances, like ever, <laughs> in terms of what he's doing. Um, he's just totally like basically when when Major League Baseball kind of lost a little control over its QC, its baseball production, and we started having this uh, having a little bit of variety in how the balls traveled in the late mm-hmm. 2010s. Uh, one of the narratives that came out of that was the launch angle revolution and the idea that hitters were starting to just go ahead and, you know, there's some cause and some effect here of like, well, the ball's flying now. We'll just go ahead and pull home runs uh, and not worry about anything else. And so you have these stories of players like Mitch Haneker who would just retool their swings to just hit fly balls and just, you know, try and hit as hard as we can. Um, and that lasted for a little while uh, until the ball, it really did get proven. The ball was just, um, <laughs> and <laughs> that, that narrative kind of died down, but now, Schneider's basically just doing it again, but doubly so. He's doing nothing but hitting fly balls. His ground ball rate is the lowest in baseball uh, and the lowest kind of in years in baseball. He just doesn't hit the ball on the ground ever. Um, And it's working. (laughs) So far, at least, it's working. And it's kind of interesting because the the model here is actually uh, over on the other side of your division in Adam Duvall who has also kind of done this to a lesser extent, but over more time. And it's been working for him, too. He's having a great season when he can get on the field uh, of just being like, you know, when you, when you hit singles, you have to hit singles 30% of the time, right? You have to, you have to succeed 30%. That seems like a pretty low rate. But when you only hit home runs, you only have to succeed 5% of the time. <laughs> and Snyder's succeeding far more than 5% of the time right now. Uh, so it's interesting how that works. Yeah. It's also, look, if you're, if you're looking at, you know, the way variance works on, if you're thinking of something like batting average on balls in play, you know, we've moved past, Hey, everyone eventually normalizes to about 300 as a batting average on the balls that are in play. Uh, we can break those down into the components and you know, it doesn't go for a hit a ton. If you're not a super speedy guy, if you hit the ball on the ground a lot. So uh, that is one good way to do it. And look, we can look at guys like, uh, you know, Luisa rise who has, uh, a tremendous batting average numbers over the years and batting average on balls and play numbers because he hits line drives and he doesn't put the ball on the ground. He puts it, he doesn't hit it far enough for a fielder to get it and he doesn't hit it low enough for a fielder uh, to get it. So that's a, a good piece of your profile to have there. And you know, the nice thing about that too is that batted ball stats stabilize a little earlier so we can be kind of confident that that's a skill that Schneider owns even in a small sample. The other thing that he's done even better this year, Patrick, is that he is, and, and we can use the term swing decisions, and that doesn't just mean you walk a little bit more and you strike out a little bit less, even though he is doing that. It also means if your approach is, hey, I'm not going to hit anything that I'm going to roll over and put on the ground. Well, if you have very good swing decisions at which pitches you're swinging at, you can probably better identify the balls you can hit in the air. Uh, how much do you see those two skill sets, pitch identification or, or swing decisions if you prefer, and this you know back control element that David Schneider has how much do you see those two things working in concert here well that's really the key uh the walk rate i think and the lack of chases is what makes this all work uh because you know you're every baseball player is going to get some bad pitches to hit like the first home run that davis Snyder hit from uh james baxton might have been the worst pitch i've ever seen <laughs> i don't know there was an 81 mile an hour middle middle to vlad that he took deep yesterday so it's uh <laughs> it's yeah there are some bad pitches out, but the one you include in your article yes was the meatball to end all meatballs 
Yeah, and he, he actually just got one from Chapman earlier this week that was, yeah, also pretty up there as far as uh, pitches. But they, these things happen. Like The home runs off those pitches count. They're, they're, they're just as good for the stats. They're just as good for the scoreboard. And no pitcher can ever truly avoid, unless they're Wade Miley, to ever throw anything down the middle of the plate. And he's just taking advantage of those. And the reason he's able to take advantage of those is because he's not hitting or reaching for all those bad pitches before them in the count. Um, so because he's able, he, he's not, he doesn't actually make contact extremely well. He's not Luis Arias. He, he swings through a bunch of pitches. Uh, but because he is only swinging through pitches when they're strikes, he's giving himself just enough chances to, uh, to hit the jackpot, and he's hitting jackpots. Yeah, you're not wor- you're not wasting opportunities uh, to you know hey lean in lean into one or, or poke one in. Um, so when you look at where Davis Schneider has gone, and you said this is a dr- such a dramatic turnaround in what you think of a player and how you you project a player forward, he has a good eye at the plate. He makes the good swing decisions. He has this ability to hit the ball in the air. And yeah, he's not a he's not a great defender at any of the positions, but he has some positional versatility there. Um, when you look at him moving forward, has he, you know, done enough that you look at him as kind of a, a high floor guy and Hey, we'll see about the ceiling because the exit velocities aren't a lead and he does swing through stuff, but there's enough here to, yeah, it's hard to see him not being a major leaguer at this point. The exit velocities are elite, but he is squaring up. He's barreling so many pitches that you can hit home runs on 87 mile per hour. Uh, you know, when you have an 87 mile per hour exit velocity, as long as you're getting a certain number of them right, and he's getting a certain number of them right. I think, as far as his long term prognosis goes, I mean, we're early, and the book is not yet out. It's kind of always surprising to me how slowly the book comes out on players, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I don't think you know. Eventually, pitchers are going to realize that uh, high fastballs are not going to fool him, uh, and that he's happy to climb the ladder. Um, and so he isn't, you know, they're going to start working him down in the zone more. And he is relatively, you know, compared to, you know, he's only slugging, he's only slugging 583 on pitches in the bottom third of the zone uh, <laughs> compared to the rest of his staff. <laughs> uh, they'll start working him down more. They'll start throwing in more change-ups. He will have to make adjustments. Uh that's to say that he also can't make adjustments as well. Um, but uh, we'll see how it goes. I, I do think that like it makes sense. The Blue Jays basically said, we're not going to try and get a Marcana or we're not going to try and get a Tasker Hernandez because we wanted to give this guy a spot. And boy, uh, it sure seems like it worked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's worked. I, I would argue maybe they should have done both. Uh, you could, uh, yeah. given that this offense, you know, uh, it's like we say it jokingly a little bit. But yeah, at times David Schneider has been the only uh, the only guy hitting just only scored nine over four games uh, against Texas. Um, Patrick, I, I don't know if you got a chance to see it, but you you wrote um, the a couple weeks ago. You say that like it's a good thing about some of these kind of externalities of different rules. Did you see the Chris Bassett, uh, Mitch Garver thing uh, coming off of third base at the start of this series? So I watched the play, and I can't say I understand it entirely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that like one of the underrated things about the pitch clock, like, one of the things that we were talking about very much early in the year was wasn't going to get in pitchers' heads. Uh, was it going to start distracting players? And largely, we found that most baseball players don't get distracted by anything. <laughs> they are they are masters at keeping themselves from being distracted and just focusing in. Bassett in that situation looked rattled. And he looked rattled because the pitch clock, you know, the pitch column wasn't working. He looked rattled because, you know, a guy halfway down the line is rattling, right? It's weird to see a guy that far away. 
he disengaged twice for no real reason and basically created the situation where he couldn't walk over without creating the bog. I, I don't, I don't get it. Can you can you explain to me? I don't I don't get it. No, it was basically just yeah. I mean, I guess in part because of the heavy shift that was on with a, a left-handed yeah. hit, it was just a kind of the, a weird confluence of, of everything going on there. Um, just wanted your your yeah your read on it as a, something we'll probably never see again, but as a one-time thing. What a what a curiosity as a as a wrinkle yeah. of the uh, of the pitch clock and the the disengagement rules. I think that it's something that when we talked about these rules at the beginning, it's something we wanted to see, right? This this chess game uh, between you know noted base runner Mitch Garver, backup catcher slash DH, and that sort of thing is interesting. Like it's compelling. Um, and whenever I see situations like this, I always think, well, what if this were a game seven of a playoff series and this happened? Because um, imagine, imagine how the, the fallout would be. Um, but you know, as far as as far as a viewing experience, like I like these wrinkles. I like the idea that these things can force people, both the players and the fans, to do a little bit more math and to do a little more consideration of exactly how complicated these situations are. So I think, in that sense, it's a good thing. Um, now, will it get taken to an extreme and then have you know somebody? It'll be the same situation as, as a pitch violation, you know, causing a game-winning run, and all of a sudden it's going to feel awful. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to feel great. And luckily, this one, you know, obviously they—I they, I don't mean it's a good thing that the Blue Jays got blown out in that game, but it's—it uh, it didn't end up mattering a ton in the grand scheme right. of the game or the series or the wild card race, where you know there's a scenario where it would have um okay in terms of you know the way the rules work and, and little externalities and things like that we all obviously two two and a half weeks ago made a, a big deal of the angels dumping a, a number of guys on waivers to try to duck beneath the tax to try to make sure they got a, a higher compensation pick for Shohei Otani if and when he leaves this offseason um and that had the potential to like the Garver Bassett thing maybe really impact the wild card races and that would make it all look a little worse the way it has played out is almost none of those guys uh, have made much of an impact. Lucas Giolito will start again today. We'll see if he can have one good one. But that Cleveland team is out of it at this point. The Reds have not gotten a ton out of Bader and Renfro. Um, now with the, the benefit of a couple weeks behind us, how do you feel about how that went down? And, um, you know, if it's something that we need to look at or, hey, the proof is in kind of none of this ended up. Shocker that all the guys the Angels got rid of when they didn't make the playoffs didn't really change the outlook of the, the playoff race. So, yeah, they got away with it. Um, I still don't like it. I don't like it, and it's not necessarily because of what the, the successful teams, the claiming teams did. Although, you know, it's not fun to have Rich Hill get cut in the middle of September and then nobody claim him, and then for him to have to just kind of, you know, go back to the Padres and pitch the rest of the season. Um, that, that was sad. I, I didn't enjoy that. It's more that I, I don't like what the Angels did to the Angels' perspective, and it's because this is just a new way to tank. Um, and I don't like tanking in any form. I don't want any team to make themselves worse. And in my opinion, I don't care about the money when it comes to these teams. I, I, when, it, when it comes to what a team does, I care about whether they made themselves better or worse. And if they claim that they had to because of money, that's their own problem. The Angels just decided to make themselves worse. They cut a quarter of their roster. And then they sold tickets to games that 
after that point. And so when you're on one side saying, well, it doesn't matter if we lose these players because we're eliminated, but also please come to our ballpark and, and enjoy our entertainment product. I have, a, I have a real problem with that dissonance. Uh, teams should try to win even when they can't get anything for it because that's baseball. This is the unspoken contract that we have. Everyone is trying to win every game. That's supposed to be the way it goes. Uh, it doesn't always uh, doesn't always work out that way. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays will be trying to win as many games as possible these last two weeks. As over in Seattle, the the Mariners and Rangers will uh, fight it out at some point. Hopefully, Davis Schneider and all the great batted ball stuff that you wrote about Patrick uh, comes through for the Blue Jays against the Red Sox once again, like he did in his debut. Patrick Dubuque of Baseball Prospectus. Thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Yeah, thanks, Blake. Patrick Dubuque, Baseball Prospectus. Make sure you go check out that piece on David Schneider, all their great work over at Baseball Prospectus. Um, and interesting to hear someone Seattle-based uh, who has followed that Mariners team for a lot, to- a lot of time, not feeling uh, super confident on that side of things either because, as Patrick pointed out, the Mariners are fresh from a pretty bad stretch of baseball as well as the Rangers were. Now, the Blue Jays are not fresh from a bad stretch of baseball until we see otherwise. They are in the midst of of a very bad stretch of baseball, losing four in a row to the Rangers, turning a one and a half game lead in the wild card into a two and a half game gap behind Texas and a one and a half game gap back of the, of the postseason. 79.3% playoff odds entering this series, 33.6% coming out of it. Uh, things are not in a great place and they need to start turning it around right now. It'll be Jose Barrios on the Hill trying to do that tonight. He'll go opposite Brian Bayo. Brian Bayo, who has been a, a very nice and fun piece for this Boston team, but not an impossible guy to get some offense in against. Uh, the rest of the series, we'll see Chris Bassett against Chris Sale. Chris Sale hasn't gone longer than five innings in his six starts since returning off the IL. Uh, but that's another guy who, on his good days, has a lot of good swing and miss stuff. And then the series will close out with Hyunjin Ryu and Nick Pavetta, who only recently moved back into the rotation after a couple of stints as like a bulk guy or a follower. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Elsewhere, Houston is at Kansas City. So you like Houston's chances to continue gaining ground or establishing some space in the AL West. Seattle will play the Dodgers and Texas will be at Cleveland. So uh, Texas, not the most difficult of matchups there. We'll see if their offense keeps going against Lucas Giolito here. Seattle has the toughest of the matchups hosting the Dodgers. Houston should have it pretty good against Kansas City. So um, Jay's somewhere in the middle with a Boston team that was playing pretty well and has now dropped seven of nine and fired their general manager, Heim Bloom. So uh, quite the contrast in big picture moves right now, but not really a, a big contrast in terms of the energy around those teams. Um, Brian Bayo, by the way, if you're looking ahead to what he's going to throw, another guy that throws a lot of sinkers, he'll throw that sinker about 50% of the time to right-handed batters. So the Jays' righties will have to stay aware of that sinker and try to put some lift on things. Not another day of, hey, nothing but ground balls. And if you get anyone on, it's just a single. He'll mix in a change and a slider as well. He'll actually lead with that change against lefties as his number one pitch. Uh, Barrios, you know the deal 
at this point, uh, but he has not had the best of goes since August 1st, a 465 ERA and two home runs per nine. He'll try to get that going. Uh, donning number 21 today in honor of Roberto Clemente. It is Roberto Clemente day around baseball. We played a clip of that interview with Jose Brios and Hazel May earlier. Make sure you check out Blue Jay Central for the extended version. Thank you to Patrick Dubuque for coming on, to Andy McCullough, to Gabrielle Starr, and to Shai Davidi. Uh, Brent Gunning and Sam McKee are coming up for you next. If you need more setting up this series, Blair and Barker have you 5-7. to seven. As always, they'll also have Jay's talk for you uh, after the game. I can only imagine what those have been like the last couple nights. Here's hoping that today's a little better. Today's Jay's talk's a little better. And when we talk to you on Monday, those 33.6% playoff odds are a little higher north. Have a great weekend, everyone. We'll talk to you Monday.